Welcome to the East Career Cast. I am Stefan Leichte, your host today for this podcast. Today we will discuss the topic of outreach and injury prevention. We are very grateful to have Dr. Mike Abutanos with us. Dr. Abutanos is the Chief of the Division of Acute Care Surgical Services at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. He is a professor of surgery at the VCU School of Medicine, and among many other roles, he is the director of VCU's Injury and Violence Prevention Program. Dr. Abutanos earned his medical degree from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and a master's degree in public health at the Johns Hopkins University School of Hygiene and Public Health. He underwent his residency training at VCU Medical Center and General Surgery and the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Preventive Medicine. He completed a trauma fellowship at Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Abutanos, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Now, Dr. Abutanos, as trauma surgeons, we usually get called after trauma has occurred and we treat the uh, acutely injured patient. Why is it important that as trauma surgeons, we get involved in the prevention of trauma and violence either before the trauma occurs or afterwards to make sure it doesn't happen again? I think it is extremely important uh, for a couple uh, reasons. One of it is because we are the ones that can speak most to it. And there's a huge validity to what we do. We simply underestimate the amount of um, social impact that we can have by our position. And so instead of limiting ourselves to only be clinical, we have actually incredible amount of responsibility. And uh, with it comes a lot of validity. No one can replace the, the doctor-patient relationship. That becomes incredibly important when it comes to trauma, especially as we're talking about saving life and saving them. So we create an incredible rapport with the patients. And therefore, it actually gives us a lot more credence than anybody else in the community for us to reach those very difficult to reach type of patients and to say, look, you trust me enough to take care of you. You trust me enough to put you back together or to operate on you. Won't you trust me to get you into programs that will help you get out of the cycle of violence or get out of the habit of whether it's alcohol or drugs, etc. So we are a key part of the solution, and, that, and that's why I think it's extremely important. The second is because the patients are far more receptive. We're not the police. We're not the judge. We're not anybody. We're just someone who's on their side trying to take care of them. So there's a window of opportunity where those patients are receptive to listening to something that will may alter their path. And that's why I think it's really incumbent on us to be heavily involved in injury and violence prevention. So it sounds like the key really is the uh, special doctor-patient relationship, um, that they see us as somebody that's there in a bad moment to help them out, and as you said, without any concern for legal implications or, or prosecuting them. And the other point is that I think the, the buzzword is a teachable moment, having a major trauma, that often is maybe the only chance we get to actually get through to those patients, and they might realize it's time to change their life, especially when we talk about violent trauma, or also time to do something different if we talk about an elderly individual that have many falls at home. Absolutely. Now, in, in the prevention uh, theme, there's a lot of different words and names for that. We have community outreach, we have injury prevention, violence prevention. Are all these different aspects of, of one approach, or are those really completely separate areas of engagement? They're not really separate when you look at the concept. The concept is the same, and the concept has to be the public health approach. 
And I think that's what unifies all of these together, is identifying the problem and then identifying the risk that are associated with the problem and then identifying the various things where you could mitigate those risks and then going back and evaluating what you have done to see if it make a difference. That's the unifying approach to whether it's injury prevention or violence prevention. What comes different about them is now the risk factors are different, and therefore your intervention will be different based on what those risk factors are. But a lot of people have missed that. Really, we're just talking a public health model here that applies to all of these. And injury prevention and violence prevention, and we publish actually about this, having a hospital intervention program is extremely important, but unless it's linked with the community, its impact is not that strong, it's not that high. And therefore, the community outreach part, which you have mentioned, becomes extremely important. The hospitals have to play a central part in the community approach, and injury and violence prevention is one aspect of how to do this. So you see these terms used, you know, violence prevention, injury prevention, community outreach, all of these, again, are based on the concept of public health approach, mm-hmm. identifying what is the problem in your institution, and then going about it in a scientific manner of getting uh, the risk factors and then addressing those risk factors. Okay. We'll talk about the uh, the various partners in the community in a, in a little bit, so I won't go into more detail here, but it sounds like we can basically say this is some, the idea definitely is the same. It's a public health approach, and then there's differences based probably also on where your hospital is. If you're fortunate enough to be in an area where there's no or not much violent crime, you probably have to put less emphasis in, in that kind of prevention, but maybe more in elderly falls um, or, uh, or other car crashes, um, motorcycle helmet issue and so on. Exactly. You have to address the problem that you are having. And, and that goes back actually to your first question, how do you get involved? and why is it important to be involved? Because you're addressing a local problem that you have identified. So you're not going to talk about gun violence if you don't have that. On the other hand, if you're in the middle of an urban city and you have a lot of gun violence and youth violence, you have to be involved and identify the risk factors that are attributable to your community. So, yes. Now, um, you've been in two places, I would say, where unfortunately gun violence is uh, is quite a significant problem, Baltimore for fellowship, and we all know that's a very busy place. Um, Richmond also um, has quite a, quite a significant amount of, uh, of violent trauma, penetrating trauma. Um, at what point and when did you get interested in that whole topic, and how did you get started? Well, I have been, I've been always uh, uh, interested in this topic. Actually, it's the reason why I became a doctor and a surgeon was uh, um, mainly with regards to uh, scene violence. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a childhood of growing up in a war, and that I've always looked at how can I prevent mm-hmm. uh, these very injuries. But the turning point, I would say, for me, is when I uh, was involved with a, with a patient that came in, 17-year-old, who was uh, shot in the uh, right lower extremity as a femoral, uh, he's an SFA injury, uh, and we... Uh, um, we worked extremely hard. We actually thought he was going to lose a leg and eventually um, was able to get him out of the hospital. And with, uh, with rehab, he uh, did well. And so we were very proud. He did a great job. Mm-hmm. Only to have two months later for him to come back. And he had multiple gunshot wounds in the abdomen. And then he, uh, again, that was a, a long process uh, for him. Ended up having an ostomy. We eventually kind of reversed the ostomy. Uh, and, et cetera. and then 
few months later, after all this, he mm-hmm. comes back again to our emergency department, and this time he was shot in the head. And I watched that kid die in the emergency room. And I realized that what we're doing, we could be excellent technically. We could know mm-hmm. exactly what needs to happen. We could have a multidisciplinary team of rehab and getting him out of the hospital. But we're missing something very important and how to mm-hmm. prevent these injuries. And this what made me uh, be heavily involved. And I had to turn it on and just say, okay, now how can I have everybody else see what I am seeing? Mm-hmm. And it, the, the most important part is you realize you cannot do it alone. Mm-hmm. And that, but that is how I got involved. Unfortunately, these days, as you know, you don't not you don't have to have this personal experience. But seeing all the violence mm-hmm. that we're seeing on TV, and and especially with the with the um, all the shooter um, incidents that we're having, that everybody's exposed to the fact that we have a problem and we need to solve it. Mm-hmm. So, so I think you make a very good point here. Either you have the personal um, patient, and I think many of us. Um, even going back to uh, to reasons why why people go to medical school, why they go into residency, it's a personal um, experience. Um, but you also see more and more with the unfortunately tragic events in the recent past and over the last couple of years that physicians get more and more involved. Either they get politically active or they get involved in, in violence prevention because the realization that just doing what you can do technically might just not be enough anymore. Now, uh, could you tell us about some of the programs and initiatives that you're involved in in Richmond and at VCU? I think our our program is uh, uh, unique because uh, we start out as one program, and I think that's sufficient for a lot of other places. Uh, it was a youth violence uh, intervention and prevention program called Bridging the Gap. Um, now, currently, we have about 11 programs. So we have actually built in a very extensive uh, Violence and injury prevention intervention programs uh, that are uh, that are um, linked have the buy-in from the hospital and have significant community partnership that you have to to work on this. But one specific one of our program which uh, started the whole thing was bridging the gap that I mentioned before, mm-hmm. and it is really based on the whole um, um, patient physician relationship that we talked about before. So it's an intervention program for all admitted patients to our uh, our trauma service. And uh, based on some of the uh, evidence-based intervention, we created a brief violence intervention um, that we do. We identified the risk factors, and we addressed initially patients age 10 to 24. And then after doing the hospital intervention, um, that involves a multiple uh, aspect, not only with regard to their physical, but also the mental health. And we have, and the there's any alcohol or drugs that are involved, they also have uh, specialists involved with that. But then we link them in the community with various resources. We have extensive case management uh, where we follow these patients into the community and identify the risk factors and a wraparound approach mm-hmm. and find out who else can help them. But it involves sometimes even finding new housing for them and for their entire family. Mm-hmm. It involves extensive mentorship. A lot of these patients uh, have actually a problem finding a job. Uh, we teach them uh, job skills that they would need to have. They don't know how to interview for a job. Many of them have uh, tattoos that are hindering them from being competitive uh, in their job interviews. So we have a tattoo removal program. Mm-hmm. It's a very extensive, basically, outreach um, to get that individual into a different path. So that's bridging the gap. What we have learned from bridging the gap is that 
about 40% of our patients have been in our health system before. Mm-hmm. If they're involved in any type of gangs, about 81% have been in the health system before. So we realize we need to have a, another program, which is more of a prevention program, identifying mm-hmm. the risk early. So we created an emerging leader program, so it's called. In this program, we identify patients that come to our emergency room or to our clinics early mm-hmm. and identify their risk factors and then do very similar, do intervention program for them, do wraparound program for them, and, and um, with the objective of also identifying a different path, mm-hmm. uh, providing, again, job skills, opportunities. So that's the second uh, program called Emerging Leaders. Both of these programs are incredibly engaged with community partnerships. That's mm-hmm. the only way that they will, uh, will work. Um, then, based on that same model, the youth violence prevention and intervention model, we have uh, been asked, and that's usually what happens when you create one thing, is that, and we studied our program. Mm-hmm. So, as a matter of fact, Bridging the Gap was a prospective randomized study. So, mm-hmm. uh, it was important to do that. We've shown that the community involvement is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um, we have, like many other hospitals, been having the issues of um, inability to identify a lot of our patients involved with domestic violence and intimate partner violence. Mm-hmm. So we created another program called Project Empower, mm-hmm. and very similar to the idea, I mean, again, based on the public health approach. Mm-hmm. Identify the problems, and the problem came in many folds when it comes to intimate partner violence. We have a lot of... Um, of our providers who are not don't have the skills to identify if uh, if this person has been involved with domestic violence or not, mm-hmm. they simply treat clinically and send out, only to have them come back with worse injuries. Or if we did identify, we actually don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of physicians say, "Yeah, I know that's a problem, but I have no idea what you know." And so we realize that. A lot of our own providers have no idea what resources exist in the hospital mm-hmm. and what resources exist outside the hospital. So that's why we created Project Empower. Uh, we are very lucky that to have been able to fund the, the project. Um, and now we have two coordinators who are working in teaching the staff identify injuries, mm-hmm. being engaged with the, with the actual patient when they come in. Mm-hmm. And then we created a crisis fund that ability to actually get that patient out of that situation for at least 24 hours, so whether we need to uh, provide them into a, a hotel or, mm-hmm. or, or find place for them in different families, just so they can get themselves out of that situation. A lot of stuff can happen in 24 hours, so mm-hmm. um, it's an extensive program that we're very, very proud of and we're in the of evaluating that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we, um, as you know, we have, uh, like all the other level one trauma centers, whether you're urban or not, you're involved with motor vehicle crashes mm-hmm. and distracted driving. Um, so this is now a nonviolent program that mm-hmm. we have. It's called Gracie. And it is a program that we teamed up with, uh, actually, the uh, the court system. Mm-hmm. Anybody who is uh, between the age, for us, between the age of uh, 15 to 19, um, who has been involved in, uh, in alcohol or, um, or any type of drugs, mm-hmm. Instead of being sentenced to a, uh, a special uh, program that uh, may not have the positive effect that you have, they're actually sent to us here, and we created a, a curriculum for them in the hospital. It's multidisciplinary. Now the community partners come over here, mm-hmm. and we talk about the impact of what of of their um, their involvement, and then we also talk about positive reinforcement about other. Um, the 
incisions in their life they could have done, and we expose them to different people in the house with different health careers, or even non-health careers, whether you work in the cafeteria or working in, in the parking uh, business, people underestimate how much the hospital itself is a community. And you only think of health uh, as a mm-hmm. model, but a lot of other non-health things are in the hospital to make the hospital work, you know. Mm-hmm. So these are actually opportunities for these youth to see kind of a different exposure to the job market and different um, a uh, different opportunities for them to do internship, etc. So we did the, it's called the Gracie Impact, and for that we actually uh, were uh, very successful in having an ongoing program. We won actually the Governor Award for Distracted mm-hmm. Driving uh, for this. Uh, like many other programs, we also have one more program that we'll describe, which was uh, it's called Project Impact. Mm-hmm. This program, we actually go to the community, mm-hmm. to the various high schools, and identify beforehand if they had an issue. Let's just say there was an issue of distracted driving or an issue of date rape and domestic violence in their, in their families or someone was shot. Mm-hmm. And we actually uh, have the uh, students in that school that are involved in a simulation of what happened to you when you get injured. Mm-hmm. And we have, let's just say there's a car crash. We show what happened with the car crash. We simulate what happened. We have the uh, life evac helicopter come in and help. We have all our uh, pre-hospital providers come in and show what they do to save a life. Once you g- capture that entire high school's attention, like mm-hmm. this is kind of cool stuff, then you turn around into what are the impact, what else could you have done, expose them to different things they could be involved in, mm-hmm. invite them to be involved in programs that we have. And this has been incredibly successful. Mm-hmm. to impact the minors' perception of violence and mm-hmm. offer other opportunities for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure we don't have the time, but we have a lot of other uh, ongoing programs. We're heavily involved with Stop the Bleed campaign, as an example. We're involved with the uh, Elderly Falls uh, program that mm-hmm. we have, which is becoming progressively more important. We have a trauma survivor network. Um, we have extensive burn injury prevention programs as mm-hmm. well, and uh, PTSD program. And finally, like everybody else, in, uh, trauma centers involved with an expert program for alcohol mm-hmm. prevention. This is a quick view mm-hmm. of our involvement. I think if you say, well, how do you do all of this? Mm-hmm. If you don't have the hospital commitment, and that's the most important part, you've got to do your homework. You've got to, from the very beginning, start presenting at every board meeting, whether it is at the administrative level, whether it is at the nursing level. You go to every one of those meetings and start describing the agenda, what mm-hmm. we're seeing. Everybody has a trauma registry. Use your registry. Show what the problem is. Mm-hmm. And show how this is a recurrent problem. It's not something that's going to go away. And that's the difference between a trauma center is that it's not an event. It's not like an action potential that just happens. Mm-hmm. You know, It's something that progresses. You're going to keep on seeing. And you keep on doing that until slowly but surely you get the entire hospital behind you and then help you in, in using those resources mm-hmm. to build your program, our first coordinators were funded by the hospital with actually the commitment that within two years 
we're going to get outside funding, and this mm-hmm. is exactly what we did. Mm-hmm. So that's an amazing range of services, and I think it becomes pretty obvious that, first of all, this is not something that can be done just by, let's say, social work, but this is a, this is a dedicated team that addresses all those issues. And you also mentioned you obviously work with a lot of partners in the community, from law enforcement to private foundations that provide funding, um, but also to the hospital administration. As you, as you say, the hospital is not just the place where the, the operations happen or the trauma care, but also um, it's, a, it's an employer, a big employer for most communities where there might be opportunities for, for these patients. Now, um, do I need to get an advanced degree like you did or additional training to really be effective in this area, or um, is this something that's obviously helpful but not really necessary? You definitely do not need to have a degree. You know, yes, it is helpful because it opens your mind to a bigger uh, picture, you know, looking at the social aspect, but by no means do you have to have a degree at all. The, what we did realize, though, and not, not just us, but a lot of other programs across the country, that we could have coordinators who, who uh, help with the program, especially if they're involved with social workers, but then we created a... Uh, a curriculum for the coordinators. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think, what the American Trauma Society has done. Initially, started with AASD initiative, along with the help of the American College of Surgeons, and to put together a training program mm-hmm. to have your coordinator be trained to how mm-hmm. to address this. At the same time, um, I will really uh, refer everybody to the, uh, the ACS bulletin mm-hmm. that came out in October with a dedicated issue on injury violence, but mm-hmm. what's really good about it, about it is that there is a primer inside that describes to everybody how to initiate a hospital-based intervention program mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and how to build it step-by-step. Step. Mm-hmm. So I think that's an excellent resource. It came from a lot of people who, who are, who've been doing this for a while, and it, it addresses also a timeline. How long is it going to take you? How do you do this? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's unfortunate a lot of people try to reinvent the wheel, mm-hmm. and you really don't have to do that these days. There are plenty of programs that have shown that they're able to sustain their programs for a while, and there are a lot of pitfalls that you need to avoid, but also incredible lessons that will help you. So no, you do not have to have a degree, mm-hmm. uh, but you have to be smart and learning from others. Mm-hmm. You have to realize what are the resources in your own hospital first, mm-hmm. and and also realize that you have to build a team that does this. It's not something you're going to do on your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as a, if we specifically talk about as a provider, you have a voice, so that's a strong voice. So there is a leadership skill that, it will, that is important from you. Mm-hmm. And this is what the hospital looks for. If you bring the problem to them, who's going to lead that problem? Who's going to lead that uh, uh, team to solve those solutions? And so uh, it is what you mentioned before. It's a commitment. Mm-hmm. But it and, but it has a specific step to how to transform this commitment into successful results. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, you you partially gave an answer to kind of my last and summarizing question I had. Um, if somebody listens to this now and obviously is, is maybe interested in getting started in this topic, what are the first steps? And maybe even breaking it down, if you're looking at this as a resident or fellow, um, if you're looking at this as junior faculty, or then maybe out as senior faculty where you have more time and resources. And it sounds like you already gave the first answer. Um, Look at resources that are there, um, that bulletin article, for example, with website links with program descriptions, so you don't start from scratch, but you can actually build on other people's experiences and achievements. Um, what are some other ideas you could give somebody at various stages of their medical career to get yeah. involved? I think those are excellent. I think one, one aspect, like I mentioned, do not reinvent the wheel. 
Number two, they're already uh, prominent trauma societies. Our societies have been heavily involved in injury and violence prevention, as you know, including, you know, East, American College of Surgery, the AST. Uh, all of those have committees that are, um, that have wonderful, incredible mentors and people who are actively involved. So go to those committees, sit there, listen, mm-hmm. see what they're doing, and then get the ideas and say, well, how did he do that? How did she get this involved? And then uh, all of us are open at any time to to play that mentorship role that, that would really be helpful with regard to this. So that's one. The second part is work with your trauma program manager to look at the data that they have, that, that your institution has, and start small. Start with one project and see how that project works. Mm-hmm. You know, And then you say, okay, how do you move that project from being evidence-based to being the standard of care? Mm-hmm. I do, and this is one of my one of my uh, advice. I would just say, I strongly uh, advise that don't jump into making something the standard of care in your hospital. Make it evidence based first. Build on the scientific program. Contribute mm-hmm. to literature because every place is a little bit different, mm-hmm. and find out what works for you. Publish on it, and then with strong proof, basically, you come back and just say, okay, now this should be the standard of care because this is what we have shown. You know, mm-hmm. and don't work alone. Work with other institutions that are doing something, and be involved in multidisciplinary approach and multi-institutional approach uh, mm-hmm. with regard uh, with regard to this. Um, those can be my main thing: is don't reinvent the wheel. Start out with a project initially. Learn what other people have uh, have done by institutional support. So you're a junior faculty. Now you got to really be able to. Um, have the support from your senior faculty, mm-hmm. from your program director. Mm-hmm. Uh, not everybody is going to be enthusiastic about injury and violence prevention. Some of them don't have that uh, that commitment. So now it becomes your job mm-hmm. to make that interest and put the case for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other part that I think, especially with the senior faculty, is advocacy. That's a major part of injury and violence prevention, mm-hmm. is that if we don't advocate, we could have all these ideas, all the scientific mm-hmm. evidence, but we can still not reach any type of, of uh, um, true impact if we don't change the, the various laws that are affecting what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's in it together. When you become a senior faculty, you more and more have a bigger picture. And like you said, you may have a little more time, but can't speak volume with regard to the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have, I described one example of one patient you have thousands of patients with similar stories. And the um, get involved locally in your local chapters mm-hmm. uh, with regards to advocacy to support the various programs. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's an excellent summary. Um, so basically start small, start local. Um, that gives you also just simply credibility if you can go to the society and say, I've done something in my community. And then also um, it does come back to political influence and money in the end that's also needed, obviously. So those are important points. Now, given all those, that's obviously it's um, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be a lot of work. So uh, as, as motivation, is there maybe one particular success story you remember, be it an individual patient or be it um, numbers in terms of uh, violent crime enrichment that decreased or any, any kind of final motivation you could give somebody that wants to be interested? One thing we're, we're very proud of is that for our Vision the Gap program, for example, we're able to show significant reduction in our recidivism. Uh, our our hospital recidivism, excuse me, 
excuse me, is with about 15 to 20 percent. Mm -hmm. So now we are actually less than less than uh, one percent that we're seeing per year. That's huge. Mm -hmm. Different, so it comes out to be about 2.5 percent over the course of five years mm -hmm. of what we have we have seen. That's overall looking at, at our numbers. Uh, but a specific success stories. That's when you know you've done something uh, right. I um, remember one young patient. He was actually the second person in our program that he was shot, and we worked heavily on changing um, all his risk factors so we mm -hmm. don't see him again. And we were very impressed by his ability to come back and say what you've done is well but not good enough mm -hmm. and this is how you could do it better and we turned around and we hired him and mm -hmm. he became one of our own coordinators and his ability to reach some of our uh, patients is incredible when you form a group uh, of coordinators you really have to pay strong attention to the cultural aspect and make sure you have a diverse cultural group mm -hmm. because your patients are culturally different and the, it was interesting to watch him being able to reach some patient that our other coordinators that have a degree have not been able to, mm -hmm. to reach. And it's just been able to connect in what have been walked in those shoes before. So that's another part. The success story is when you can get your own patient to actually come back and mm -hmm. be your own, be mentor to you now and mm -hmm. to your, into your programs. Um, that's something actually we're very proud of. Uh, currently, in our intimate partner violence pro, uh, prevention program, Project Empower, we also have another one of our own patients mm -hmm. who've been involved with uh, uh, intimate partner violence, and she's been phenomenal in reaching other patients. Those are kind of quick examples. Mm -hmm. Just that you know, we're we're doing. I believe we're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. Now, those are fantastic individual successes, but also if you if you think about how many lives that one person that comes comes back to help now might in turn save or improve, that's uh, that's quite amazing. So, uh, thanks so much. Um, that was a, a great interview. On behalf of the East Career Development Committee, I would like to thank you, Dr. Abutanos, for taking the time to speak with us today. I am Stefan Leicht, and I hope you enjoyed this program. Please visit the EAST website at east.org for more EAST career podcasts and other valuable information.